Lord, we thank you that you are gracious in mercy, that you are slow to anger, and that you are overflowing with steadfast love to us whom you have made and whom you have loved. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you know that I work with our our teenagers here at the church. Um, I, I am a priest. That's kind of my primary area of focus is middle school and high school students. And so a lot of times when I'm reading scripture, my mind can't help but think about living in that world. And so I've kind of got a little bit of an analogy that I'm wanting to make between the parable that we read, because maybe not all of us can, can relate with being a vineyard owner. I certainly can't. But, and just something that might be a little more contemporary that we might have all had experience with, right? Um, I think there are two kinds of people in the world. Those people who do the work in a group project and those who maybe don't do as much work in a group project. I think some of us can have already kind of sorted ourselves into where we land for whatever reason. Um, and when I was in middle school and high school, I hated doing group projects. Like, bothered me so much because I always felt like I got stuck with extra work. I didn't want my grade to be contingent on somebody else's work. And so what did that mean? That meant I went and tried to control the situation and made sure I was going to get the grade that I wanted to get. However else people were going to be involved, that was their issue. But I wanted to make sure I got the grade I wanted to get. Because the sense of the potential injustice of the scenario was really real to me. That's what I was concerned about. And on reflection, I think that it changed how I interacted with other students in not really good ways. I would talk about students behind their back if they were picked in my group. And I didn't think that they were going to pull their weight on the project. I remember, and this is, this is a window into my soul, so here you go. I remember there was one occasion in high school where I was so frustrated with my group and just really, ugh, you know, and I told my teacher that here are the things that I did on the project. I want you to grade me on those things only. <laughs> Here's also a truth about me as a high school student that still I wrestle with today is that I struggled. The, the issue wasn't the other students. The issue was actually in my own heart, right? The issue was that I was struggling so much with seeing my worth as a person in high school being so attached to my grades and, and the mark that I was going to get in my class that I couldn't see past that even for other people. Right, Because the other people in my class were people who were going to put my grade in jeopardy. Oof, that's a, that's a hard thing for me to wrestle with. And one of the things, because I work with teenagers, and I know there's a lot of pressure about grades, one of the things that I really try to communicate to our students and student ministry is that, yes, your grades are important, but they're not the most important thing about you. I had to learn this the hard way, perhaps. Academics, yes, they can be an opportunity that might help and shape your future. But God's bigger than your GPA. God sees so much more to you than that. For adults, another analogy might be, right, our relationship with work, 
or vocation or however you want to couch that language. It's tricky. It's complicated, right? What we do for a living or maybe what we're not doing or we're in the process of shifting around, that stuff, it doesn't define us. Is it important? Yeah. Has God maybe gifted us toward certain things? Yeah, but it's not the end all and be all of how we should see one another and more importantly, about how God sees us. If we look at this story in our scriptures, we can see that God had so much of a bigger vision about his kingdom and how it operates. The parable that Jesus tells in our gospel text this morning, you might have bristled a little bit, right? You might have thought, oh, it doesn't really sound fair what's happening with this, in this story with these workers. Was it really fair to pay all the workers the same wage regardless how, of how long they worked? That's something we can wrestle with, and I think it's fair for us to wrestle with. Well, I think your perspective on this may change based on where you see the center of the story. Here's what I mean. And I actually don't think that our Bible, if you have um, some headings, some chapter headings, I actually think it gets us down the wrong way of thinking. The heading that I see for Matthew chapter 20 is laborers in the vineyard. Some of us might even think that we could call this parable the parable of the undeserving vineyard workers. But what if, we, what if we do this? Thought experiment. See how your mind shifts when you hear this. What if, it's not the lab, what if it's not the parable of the undeserving laborers? What if instead it's the parable of the compassionate vineyard owner? Does that change the way we hear and see the parable? I think it will. This subtle shift switches the conversation in the parable from what is someone owed to maybe perhaps gratitude for what's received. When God is at the center of how we see the world, we are invited to view things instead from his perspective of abundance, of mercy, of generosity, rather than our own limitations, our own sense of scarcity, our own sense of, is there enough for me? Or do I need to do what I need to do to make sure that I'm provided for? I think that's what this parable at its heart is really asking us to wrestle with. So the scene that Jesus describes here, it would have been something that was very familiar to the people of his day the need for extra laborers, especially during harvest time. I know that there are some members of our congregation who really get this in their bones, right? Who, who, are, in the, who are still involved in agricultural work. You need extra work at harvest time to make sure, right? Because you want to give those crops as long as they can to get to that optimal point. And when they're ready to go, it's get them as quick as you can, right? So you can have that best harvest that you're able to have. Even to this day, Lots of communities around the world, ours included, right? There are locations where people gather who are in search of work. But here's something that's unusual about this parable that I want you to catch. This is Jesus, the master storyteller. What's unusual about this parable is the role of the master and the amount of work that the master needs. 
So the master sets out early, probably around 6 a.m., maybe even earlier than that, because the task before the master is so big. The early bird gets the worm. And he finds laborers, right? People looking for work, maybe out of a sense of desperation. If someone is looking for work, for work just even for a day, that probably means that they don't have a regular job that they can count on. And that need for work, for pay, it may not be affecting just themselves. It might be affecting a spouse, children, older parents who can't work for themselves. And so he finds laborers, and they agree to the standard wage for the day in exchange for this work. And this is where the parable, I think, is really interesting. Because he goes and gets the laborers, and he takes them, and they start working. And they're working hard. It's hot, you know, manual labor. And then he goes back, and he goes back, and he goes back. He goes back to find laborers every few hours, it seems, five different times in the story. And the last time he goes to gather the laborers from our, using our calendar, it would be probably around like 4 p.m. when the workday is about done. That's really interesting, isn't it? Here's, what, here's this exchange because Jesus gets into some more detail when he's talking to these workers who are coming at the 11th hour or at 4 p.m. Here's what he says in, verse, in verses 6 and 7. We see this exchange happen. At about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So we're starting to see a window into the character of this vineyard master. He wants to give them work. He asked them, why are you still here? Then he also says something about those, these workers who have persisted at this point, right? It's 4 p.m. Why are they still standing there? They could have just given up and gone home, but they wanted to work. Again, maybe out of this sense of desperation. Because no one has hired us. That's what they've said. And this is where I'm getting into a little bit of speculative territory, but... One of the things we ask of our children is that we ask them to wonder about these passages in Scripture, and I think that's true for our adults too. So what I've been wondering this week as I've been studying this passage is when he hears them say, because no one has hired us, maybe there's something that's happening in that vineyard master's heart. Maybe there's this flood of compassion of saying, they really want to work. They really need this money. And no one's hired them. Can I hire them? Can I find something for them? Again, I don't know what the master's thinking. But when I read this parable, especially when I think about the master at the middle, not the workers and what's happening and whether they're owed the right thing or not, it's changed the way that I've read this. So here's where the parable kind of comes to its, its climax. This is the most important part of the parable, verses 8 and onwards. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. 
And when those who hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So, okay, back up for a second. This is where, again, it continues to be really, really interesting. In some ways, this is the shock. Well, first of all, he tells his foreman to go and get the laborers. Isn't that interesting? He could have sent his foreman into the city center every time to collect these laborers. But there was something about this vineyard owner where he wanted to, to, he wanted to see and know and meet the people that were working with him. I think that's really interesting. Secondly, he starts with those who came last, and he, and he, he pays them first, right? You would think that he would start with those who had been laboring all day. But he starts with those who were last, and he pays them a denarius. So what's a denarius? Father Mark mentioned this last week, but just in case you weren't here, also, too, this is your opportunity today for you to think about the Roman Empire. And if you don't know what I mean by that, right, there's this thing that's going on on the internet where essentially um, there was a woman who was shocked at how much her husband thought about the Roman Empire every day or on a regular basis. And she was just like, that is so not in my sphere, thinking sphere. And it's become this viral thing where, where wives are asking husbands, how much do you think about the Roman Empire? And the shock continues to reverberate outwards. Well, Hillary and I had this conversation this week, and the shock was there. But in my defense, part of my job is I'm supposed to study a book where part of it takes place in the midst of the Roman Empire. So I'm thinking about the Roman Empire multiple times every day. I mean, we've got a book called Romans in the Bible. Like, how do you not hear Romans and not think about the Roman Empire, maybe even just for a little bit? Okay, back, back to this parable. So Roman Empire, this is why the Roman Empire is important, because a denarius was the kind of standard wage for one day's worth of labor. So th these laborers who have only worked for essentially an hour or so, they're getting a whole day's worth of labor. And here's where the bristling happens. Those who have been there from the beginning, they're probably thinking, ooh, look at this generous master. They only worked for an hour and they got a whole day's worth of pay. Maybe I might get two or three days worth of pay for the hard work that he's seen me do. But then when he goes to pay them, he pays them the exact same thing, which for the record is what they agreed to in the beginning, a day's worth of wages, a denarius. And what's the reaction from the laborers? It's my reaction at the group project. This isn't fair. What's going on here? Didn't you see all of this? Right? Let's see exactly what they say. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have, become, who have borne the burden of the day and of the scorching heat. But listen to how the master replies. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? 
Or do you begrudge my generosity? Oof. Do we begrudge the Lord's generosity? Going back to the group project thing, maybe if I wasn't so concerned about my grade, maybe I might have been more concerned with saying, hey, there are members of my group who aren't understanding what's going on. Maybe I should think about helping them, and then maybe our project as a whole will turn out better rather than just trying to take it over and making sure that I got a good grade. Maybe I need to think about some compassion in my heart. Maybe I need to not see people beyond these labels and the worth that it's so easy to assign people in society. So in in my study, here's a really interesting rabbinic parable that I found that that kind of mirrors some of this tension that we might feel in our hearts. In this rabbinic parable, it talks about how there are four types of people. There's kind of four characters that people can, can possess when it comes to possessions and things. So the, the first one is called the average way, and this is how it reads. What's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. Unobjectionable. The second is called the ignorant way. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. Well, did we agree to that? Why would you presume that way? That's a pretty ignorant response. Here's the third way, the way of the godly or the way of the saint. What's mine is yours, but what's yours is yours. Right? A posture of generosity. And here's the way of the fool or the wicked. What's yours is mine, but what's mine is mine. Very simple. Let that sink in a little bit. While you're letting that sink in, I want to make a connection before we close with our Jonah passage. And in order to do this, I'm going to have to do a super quick, like, one-and-a-half-minute summary of the book of Jonah so that we can catch up. Because you may have actually forgotten that this end to the Jonah passage even exists. Because what are we we focused in on when we hear Jonah? We're focused in on the whale, the big fish. So, backstory to Jonah. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. He is told to go to a city called Nineveh. Nineveh is in the Assyrian Empire. These are enemies of God. These are wicked, wicked people. And what does God tell Jonah? God tells Jonah, hey, go preach to these people. I want them to repent. I want them to turn from the way that they're living that's contrary to how I designed them for, and I want them to follow me, essentially. And Jonah says, Nineveh? Again, to go back to a sermon I preached about a month ago, those people? come on, God, like, send me somewhere else. And so what does Jonah do? He actually runs away or sails away. He gets on a boat and he books it in the other direction. And while this is all happening, a storm envelops the boat and Jonah realizes his error. Jonah tells the captain of the boat, hey, if you'll just throw me overboard, God is after me and my disobedience. This isn't about the rest of the crew. If you'll chuck me overboard, your boat can then just continue in its direction and everything will be fine. And so Jonah goes overboard, right? And this is the whale part, or a big fish, however you want to translate that word. And this fish comes and swallows Jonah up. 
and he sits in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and eventually is saved and is spit up back on the land and he realizes, oh, well, maybe in that time of reflection, because what else are you going to do for three days in the belly of a fish, right? Um, he says, okay, I guess I'll listen to you, Lord. And he goes and he preaches. And so we're catching the tail end of this story. And Jonah goes, he preaches about the Lord. And amazingly, right, these enemies of God, they turn from their evil ways. They hear this message. They're open to God. It's exactly as the Lord says. But here's what's interesting in this last little bit that sometimes we forget about, which I think is the most interesting part of the whole story. Jonah's mad. Jonah's being really dramatic. Ugh. Of course you would do the God merciful thing, right, God? That's essentially what he's saying, right? You had compassion on those people just as I thought you would. Why would you do that? We've probably got a little bit of Jonah in our hearts sometimes when we think about other people, when we don't treat people with compassion, when we don't see people the way that God sees them and from our perspective. And Jonah continues to complain. He says, again, very dramatically, I'd rather die than see all this stuff play out. And so the Lord puts this plant over him that provides him shade. But then the next day, the Lord also sends this worm and it eats the plant and Jonah's shade is gone. And so Jonah's mad at God again. And he's complaining to God again. Why would you take away my shade, right? This is another thing in Jonah's list to be mad to God about. But how does God respond, right? Don't you care about those 120,000 people in Nineveh? You care more about this plant, that just popped up a day ago, then you care about these image bearers in Nineveh. Oof, right? Again, let's take that on a little bit ourselves. We can do the same thing if we're not careful, right? There's that bit of Jonah in us. One more last connection to another part of scripture that I was thinking of when I heard this passage as well. The older son and the prodigal son. The younger son, what's he do? He spends the inheritance. He messes up royally. He, he dishonors the family name and he comes back to the father and the father shows mercy. But again, at the end of the passage, there's this funny dialogue between the older son and the father. The older son sees this party that the father's throwing, this lavish party for his son who was lost and who is now found, who's returned home. And the son says, dad, I've done all the stuff, right? I've been the good one. Why don't you have a party for me? And the father says, right? You've been here. You've been with me. Let's enjoy this moment, right? Again, the son is just caught up in his own stuff. And he can't have that compassion that he should towards his brother. So here's where I want to leave us. Do we have a big enough picture of God's mercy in our lives? For the people that anger us, for the people that frustrate us, for the people that maybe don't do things the way we want them to be done? Do we try to control it? 
Do we try to keep it about ourselves in the middle? Or do we say, God? Right? Again, this stuff, when we live it out, it's complicated. I think there's a fair discussion to be had about this whole paying thing that's happening. But the point is the compassion of the vineyard master. And this idea that God's compassion, God's generosity, God's mercy is so much bigger than ours. And when we start expecting God to treat people the way that we treat people, we're probably running into some not so good territory, right? Because we haven't earned that right standing before God. Isn't that what grace is? That God doesn't treat us the way that our actions might expect us to be treated. No, we're treated with mercy. Again, this is the other side in some ways of some of what Father Mark preached about last week, right? That's the other side of that parable. The mercy was given to the businessman who had this extraordinary debt, and yet what does he do? He's vengeful, right? He goes after the, the man with the smaller debt. He doesn't see the mercy, the forgiveness, the compassion that was given to him. I want to close with our collect for today. I think another way we could think about this is the, is the parable of the charitable vineyard owner, right? Because we, we have the word charity mentioned in our collect for the day. Let me pray this with us um, as we close and really let it sink in. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the true bond of peace and all of its virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.